Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is January 25th, Tuesday, at least if you're in the United States or in North America. We sure appreciate your being here. Our special guest tonight is Gary Steger. We've entitled this Inside the Brain of Gary Steger. Welcome, Gary. So, Gary, your mic is off. I'm thinking you've forgotten to try back on. Hi, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Yes, and I am not going to give Will Richardson access to the whiteboard because I know what he will do to your photograph there. Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central. It's a program that uh, I helped to run for Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate. The network is free. It's a social network for educators that includes uh, a version of Illuminate baked into it. I hope that you'll come and find it helpful to you. Coming up on the Future of Education tomorrow night, Michael Horn talks about the new edition of Disrupting Class. On Monday, Karen Cater has rescheduled, uh, rescheduled for this coming Monday, uh, to talk on the National EdTech Plan. Uh, David Wiley talks about uh, open education. Uh, Karen Hume on her book, Tuned Out. David Perkins on Making Learning Whole. Kevin Kelly on What Technology Wants. Uh, newly added John City Brown on his new book, uh, The New Culture of Learning. Hope that there's something in those or the rest of the list that's of interest to you and that you'll join us for another session. If you've missed any sessions from Future of Education, they are all recorded in full Illuminate versions and in MP3s. You can go to futureofeducation.com and find all the recordings there. If this is your first time at Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Uh, we hope that you'll uh, actively participate toward the end by asking questions. Um, in the meantime, you can use the chat to uh, leave notes for each other. Please do keep those on topic. Uh, and, and even though it looks like you can send private messages, and they're not entirely private, Gary and I will see them. Uh, and so if there are a lot of them, it can be distracting. Um, I find that it's easiest to be in Illuminate with a group of this size, to go up to View Layouts and click on the wide layout. It makes the chat a little bit easier to see. OK, so we'll give you a chance now to indicate where you're participating from. Look for the wand with the red star. It's to the left of the map. Click on that, and then click on the map. Feel free to give a shout out in the chat as well. Looks like a nicely diverse, geographically diverse crowd here. This is fun. I'll look an expert who actually put some text on the whiteboard. We especially appreciate your coming if you're in the United States because we know that right after Gary's uh, interview, the State of the Union address takes place. And so uh, appreciate your making time for both tonight. Oh, what a terrific group. Thank you so much for being here. So Gary, this is actually the third time that uh, I've interviewed you, maybe fourth if we include the Elevate Ed discussion. I wondered if we could shift gears a little tonight and instead of diving sort of instantly into the policy and politics of education, if we could talk a little bit about your background, uh, your work in classrooms, your work with technology in schools, and get a sense of the things that you uh, passionately care about uh, related to teaching, learning, and, and technology? Well, sure. Um, and thanks again for having me, Steve. You do a terrific job here. Um, 
this is actually an interesting time to be reflective because this is the 29th anniversary of me um, having my first job in educational computing. Um, but my my interest in learning and learning with computers goes back a half dozen or years before that. Um, some of you know and have heard me talk about and have read um, that in the mid-1970s, 1975 or 76, I was fortunate enough to attend a junior high school in New Jersey where there was a mandatory nine-week computer programming class taught by Mr. Jones. And um, when I was in seventh grade, and for the first time in my life, I felt intellectually powerful because we didn't know what was impossible. We thought anything was possible. Um, making the computer do something that it didn't do naturally uh, was, was incredibly empowering and a, a really stimulating and rich experience for me. And I went on through high school to run clubs after school to teach other kids how to program and actually took a 10th grade math class called Algebra 2 with computer programming that I find particularly ironic. 35 years later, no, doesn't even exist. Um, but the experiences I had in Mr. Jones's class sort of shaped all of my my thinking about about thinking, about learning, about working with computers um, ever since. Um, Mr. Jones was a terrific teacher. He he had to have been. We only had one or two teletypes connected to a timeshare mainframe system somewhere else in our classroom, so he had to manage the children. Um, his enthusiasm for solving problems and computer programming was infectious. We were able to, to learn without learning by watching him learn because he had to have been learning this stuff just slightly ahead of us. After all, there was no after school workshop or master's degree program or future of ed webinar that he could have participated in in the mid-1970s. Um, and then I went through high school and had sort of the uneven, you know, miserable adolescent high school experience. Um, was heavily in, interested in, in music, was, was studying to be a jazz musician, um, and in fact went to Berkeley College of Music on a scholarship um, to be an arranger and to be a jazz musician, never thinking that I would ever use a computer again because in the late 70s up until about 1981 when I graduated high school, um, the computer was a novelty. It was something that I could become lost in for dozens of hours at a time, often overnight, um, solving problems and programming and, and challenging myself and, and my, my, my peers. Um, but no one I knew had a computer and there was no evidence that this would be anything that was um, remotely possible in the near future. And yet, when I came home from college my freshman year and when applying for summer jobs, at the time the best jobs were summer camp jobs, I applied at a number of summer camps to be a music counselor, and since I didn't play the guitar, no one would hire me. Um, and I, I ended up at Deerkill Day Camp in Suffern, New York, and he said, well, you're not right to be a music counselor, um, but I see you did some computer stuff in school, um, and he gave me a challenge to write a program that would solve some sort of problem, and he had a mini computer in his office, and having not seen a computer in about eight months, sat down, wrote the program on a computer I never used before. It worked. And a couple days later, I was running after school computer classes. I had staff and, um, and a budget and people who were working for me. And then, like now, being able to do something with a computer was sort of, um, you know, created a meritocracy where it didn't matter who you were or how old you were, um, your skills were valued and valuable. And I got interested in teaching kids how to program, and my instincts from the very beginning were about using a computer as an intellectual tool, an intellectual laboratory and vehicle for self-expression where you could mess about with powerful ideas and make things and, be, and amuse yourself and amuse your friends and solve problems. 
because after all, when I began programming computers in the mid-1970s, none of us had ever seen a piece of software that someone we didn't know directly hadn't created. Um, there was no software for us. Everything we, we did with a computer we created or someone we, direct, we knew intimately had created. And we can lift the hood and look at the code. Um, so I ran one of the first computer camp programs for kids. And then in 1983, I got a phone call from Henry Peterson, who was the director of mathematics instruction in the school district where I grew up. And he said, I know you're into this computer stuff. You know, you, you had a key to my office all through high school. Um, we're running a 12-week logo programming course for educators. And we have this professor from Rutgers named Gary Greenberg who's teaching the course. And he's killing these folks. He's going too fast. He's too sophisticated. He comes from MIT and Yale and Stanford. And, and these rank and file teachers just can't cope with him. Um, so we were thinking that if you're willing to do, to do it, we would walk into the class next week and say, for those of you who feel like you're falling behind, we have another teacher um, who was me. And you can go into this other room and spend the rest of the course with this alternative teacher who would go slower and, and maybe better meet your needs. And I remember that only two people had the courage to put their hands up to go into the remedial class with me. And they were both school secretaries. Because in the early 80s, all sorts of people went to professional development workshops. And so I, I spent the next eight or nine weeks teaching two school secretaries how to program in Logo um, because they were enrolled. And every so often, I would duck my head in to see the amazing stuff that Professor Greenberg was doing. And then I later ended up becoming a student of his and a colleague, et cetera. And we, had, we were able to become reunited about 15 years later um, and were friends until he passed away. So not long after that, I started meeting people like Dan Watt, who was a major figure in the 70s and 80s of educational computing. His book, Learning with Logo, sold over 100,000 copies in the 1980s, which is no small feat. Um, and he and his wife ran summer institutes that heavily influenced my work and taught me everything I know about how to teach teachers. And their, their mentorship and their example led to the creation of the Constructing Modern Knowledge Institute that I currently run. Um, and in the mid-1980s, started attending and speaking at conferences where I met Seymour Papper. And then we had a 20-year relationship where I've been one of the leading people in trying to, to bring his ideas to life in, in classrooms around the world. In 1990, I had the good fortune of going to Australia for the first time to speak at the World Conference of Computers and Education. And it had always been a fantasy of mine to go to Australia. Um, some organization I never heard of gave me a grant to, to pay for my expenses. Um, I was in a hotel room next to Dr. Papert. And when I arrived in Australia, I met all these amazing educators from two particular schools that had just given every kid a laptop and said, boy, I wish I could visit your school someday. The stuff you're doing seems absolutely amazing. After all, I didn't have a laptop, and none of my colleagues did at that point. I had been running the Network for Action of Microcomputer Education in New Jersey, which was a consortium of computer-using school districts for about 10 years at that point and started the New Jersey Educational Computing Conference. But I didn't have a laptop. And here I was with these fifth, sixth, seventh graders, um, the majority of them girls, because one of the schools was a girls' school. And they were programming and building robots. And we made a fax machine out of Lego that worked. And um, I said, I'd like to visit your school someday. And a half hour later, they said, well, when can you come? We'll pay. And I began leading professional development in the first two schools in a world where every kid had a laptop. And I've been doing that since. My most recent client is a school in 
South Korea, a brand new international school where we just launched one-to-one -one down to first grade. Um, so if we could talk about some of the details of that in a moment. I'll wrap this boring bit up. Um, and then in the mid-90s, I pitched the idea for an online master's degree course at Pepperdine University where I'd been working as an adjunct and, and ended up in a matter of a few months creating, um, seeking accreditation for, receiving accreditation, and enrolling students in one of the first online master's degree programs, and that was in 97-98. So I've been working in educational computing for the last 29 years. My original bachelor's degree is in elementary um, education. I have a preschool through eighth grade teaching license in New Jersey. Um, I've taught everything from the preschool level through a doctoral level. I've studied in Reggio Emilia, Italy. I was part of a project and won a Grammy Award for Latin Jazz a few years ago that fulfilled my need to be around music even though I no longer play or study it. Um, and my doctoral research involved creating uh, a multi-age, project-based, alternative, technology-rich um, learning environment for teenagers inside of Maine's troubled prison for teens. And that work was done collaboratively with Seymour Papert and my doctoral dissertation um, documents his last major institutional research project. So that's what brings us to today. I've worked in journalism and, and it's a consultant. I've led thousands of teacher workshops and keynoting conferences around the world. Um, and that's my life story. I'd be happy to shut up now and take some questions and talk about whatever you want to talk about. I'm really glad you've opened that door. So Gary, uh, as accomplished as you are, I still think of you as an alternate voice in a lot of the education discussions. Uh, I'm curious as if, uh, if you have an, an idea of why that might be, especially as discussions take place around one-to-one -one laptops and the use of computers in classrooms. Why does it feel like your voice is not the predominant one? Oh, um, a couple thoughts. One is I, I often say that my sort of sense of social activism and, and willingness to speak out comes from having had um, Bob Prail as a seventh grade social studies teacher. He's one of these teachers who irrevocably transformed the life of any kid who ever was in his class or ever met him. And I remember thinking as a 12-year-old that at any moment we might have to march on the school district headquarters to keep Mr. Prail's job because he always put our needs ahead of the sort of arbitrary curriculum. And even from a very young age, I seem to remember realizing that much of what school was teaching me, I didn't really need to worry about. Um, not that I was mastering it, but just that it would never really matter to me. Um, one of the things I tell my doctoral students and master's students is that, um, any teacher education students for that matter, is that just because you never heard anyone else say it before um, doesn't mean that I don't that I haven't given what I'm about to say or what I've written or what I did say um, a great deal of consideration and thought. Um, I don't play games. I don't play devil's advocate. You could say I often give voice to people's dirty thoughts. Um, education is a very genteel profession where I find that dissent is considered defect and, and criticism is just intolerable. You can have art criticism and movie criticism and, and music criticism and political criticism and technology criticism and automotive criticism, but we're not really all that fond of folks talking out loud about 
how education could be better for kids, and for teachers for that matter. Because I think if you make it better for kids, you make it better for teachers. So. Um, it, I, some people think I like to be controversial, and I, and I like using language in provocative ways. Um, but I really hate conflict, and my, my partner can tell you that, and my, my closest friends can tell you. I'm a lousy negotiator. I'm a lousy haggler with street merchants. Um, but I just think that we're in a very important business, if you want to use the term business, which I'm ashamed of just using in that sentence. Uh, education is critically important because kids' lives are at stake. This is a linoleum sales. And therefore, if, some, if I feel that something needs to be said, um, I'll, I'll say it, even if it's at, at, prof at great professional risk to myself. So I want to talk about the technology specifically, but you opened another door that I do want to, to mention briefly. When you and I were talking about the coalition of essential schools and the difficulty that they're having kind of maintaining momentum right now, you said it's hard to be successful if you're really trying to help children. Is this sort of a larger theme in our in the way we view education and trying to create um, sort of systematized responses? I mean, sure. One of the things I love to say is that in education, um, bad ideas are timeless, and good ones are incredibly fragile. You know, everyone in this in this webinar can can share ten examples of something brilliant that was happening in your classroom or in your, or in your school, and then the bell rang or the principal changed, and it all disappeared overnight. And yet, these sort of corporate fantasies of of kids endlessly taking tests and being taught by machine and, and data aggregation and um, it, uh, are timeless. They don't go away. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll talk about, about this in, in more specificity because specificity, I want to talk about some of the disturbing trends that I'm seeing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there's not a, I mean, for example, Seymour Papert's work rooted in Piaget was based on the notion that knowledge is a consequence of, being, of experience, that any time you teach someone something, you deprive them of the opportunity to learn it, that the richest way you could use a computer or any other medium is to make things. Because after all, again, the sort of knowledge is a consequence of experience. Well, if kids have a computer and a multimedia programming environment like Microworlds where they can create all their software and, and explore most aspects of the traditional and emerging curriculum, um, that's not really good for the computer industry because that computer might be functional for more years than, than a typical product cycle. And your school isn't writing purchase orders to buy the latest version of Print Shop or you know, how to, Columbus Day software. So there was a hostility in the computer industry and an aversion to his ideas in, in large part, I think, um, because it wasn't good for business. The idea of putting more power, more agency in the hands of kids um, may lead to schools buying less. And I've been asking the question. I tweeted it the other day. I don't know what EdTech is anymore. Apparently, it's a shopping club. It's like the home shopping channel. If you go to an EdTech conference, they're like boat shows. Uh, the discussion is about what do you have and what do you need and what should you buy next? And then how do you maintain the stuff you already have? Um, it doesn't seem to have the so same sort of embedded powerful ideas that, that got me excited about using computers, not just to teach kids things that we've always wanted them to know, maybe with greater efficiency or efficacy or comprehension or stickiness, but to create opportunities for kids to learn and do things 
that are impossible otherwise and are nowhere to be found in the traditional curriculum. So I know this has come up before, and it, and it looks like in the chat someone's mentioned, Carolyn Stanley's mentioned it as well with Web 2.0. I think you've seen both, both promise and peril in Web 2.0, which is if it's used to help students create and, and be in charge of their learning, that's a good thing. But if it's just another way for the teacher to have a voice, that it's maybe a bad thing. Did I get that right? No. I think Web 2.0 is fine largely. I mean, there's, there's some issues, Sean Lusbaum Beach and I were talking about this last week, there's some issues that Sherry Turkle raised about identity that I think are important. And I know a lot of times I feel like I'm in junior high and I'm not the popular kid because of Web 2.0 stuff. Um, but, but largely it's good. And I'm not against um, sort of, I, I don't want to build pens around kids or teachers and say you shouldn't use this or you should use that. Um, what I will say is more nuanced. I think the Web 2.0 stuff is the low-hanging fruit. If Web 2.0 is any good, then it ought to be invisible to us. It ought to be like a dial tone. It ought not to require any instruction whatsoever. Now, if your goal is to teach a new Web 2.0 tool every class period, then the curriculum becomes learning a bunch of software and not communication. But um, I've been known to say that 90% of schooling is language arts, and 98% of educational technology is language arts. And if you want to know where I got those statistics, I pulled them entirely out of my rear end. But really, think about it. Most math classes are, vocabulary, are about vocabulary. Most science classes are about vocabulary. There are instances where that's not the case, where kids have genuine experiences. But schools heavily focus on, on oral and written language development, which is fine. Um, but computers can help you focus on so much more and allow kids to be mathematicians and scientists and artists and poets and musicians and composers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, geneticists and sociologists. Um, so I think that when we focus on using computers information appliance, we represent the, the tiniest portion of what it means to be educated. And, and, and we only use the very smallest percentage of, of our capacity to learn with the technology. So in the work that you did and in the prison work, what kinds of ways did you use computers that you felt really made a difference to the students? Building simulations, making sense of large quantities of data, um, uh, engaging in amateur astronomy, programming video games, um, uh, solving math problems, exploring, exploring number theory, um, uh, you know, writing too. I mean, that's that's the obvious one. Word processing has transformed in education, um, but it's just it's just one aspect of it. I I when, in my own work, when I get an opportunity to speak to an audience, I almost always share examples that have to do with mathematics and science and engineering and the arts because I think they get short shrift in most most discussions of. Um, of educational technology, where it's where much of, many of the examples, and and I can I could randomly show you any state standards or matrix or national ed tech standards or the ISTE standards, and they might use a half dozen pieces of software, but every example is about telling a story, um, or or regurgitating some facts that the teacher poured into your head. And, and that's very different from how computers can empower you to have experiences that are authentic in domains that weren't available to young children before. So that has less to do with the computer itself than the pedagogy or the, the teacher's desire. So where have you found that 
educational communities have done a good job of building that kind of thinking into their culture. There's been a lot of examples, but they tend to be short-lived because of what I said earlier, which is that how fragile good ideas are and how they end up being um, you know, so closely tied to one or a handful of teachers or one school in a system. Um, so they're often precarious. I mean, the most disturbing email I, I receive, and I get them weekly, you know, says, I'm coming to the United States. Can you recommend some schools for me to visit? Um, and it's often hard to recommend schools for people to visit. I can recommend a classroom for people to visit. Um, at times, there are schools that are, you know, shining examples on the hill, and then you sort of blink your eyes, and um, they start sort of reverting to form. Um, but, you know, I, I think my, my work today is guided by a, a phrase that I heard the president of Bard College mentioned about three years ago, Leon Botstein, who's one of the leading public intellectuals alive today. And Botstein said, young people have a remarkable capacity for intensity. And it's incumbent upon us to build upon that capacity for intensity. Otherwise, it, it manifests itself in, in boredom or disengagement or violence or you know, dropouts um, where kids who just check out and, and have their heads on the desk. And I think we all should be looking for opportunities for kids to build upon that capacity, for us to build upon that capacity for intensity, for kids to be lost in a sort of flow experience that comes with, with, with working on something that you're in love with or deeply challenged by. Uh, and nothing breaks my heart more than going into schools where there's a lot of computers and kids are surfing the web or playing some lame-o flash game. And that's just because the adults in the school haven't, haven't introduced them to um, richer ways of, of, of using computers and shifted more agency to the child and less to the teacher or to the system. So the danger here is that it would be so easy to, to get to the larger meta discussion about education. But if we're still thinking about specific classrooms and specific practices, um, what are the key elements of a good one-to-one -one program? Oh, well, I did a whole a vision that, that, that stands on the shoulders of giants that, that I mean, when, when Methodist Ladies College announced that every kid in the school couldn't return unless they bought a laptop, which in 1990 cost $3,000, um, which I, I can't imagine, it's probably $10,000 in today's money, um, they, the principal said, we love your kids, we love that you trust them to us, we uh, um, trust us with them, we love that you send us tuition fee and fees, um, but our school is no damn good and we need to do something about it. And he went on to quote John Holt and John Dewey and Seymour Papert um, and as a vision of, of what schools could be and how computers could, for the first time ever, as Papert would say, um, bring Dewey to life. Because, you know, as Papert points out, through the 20th century, we knew how to do Dewey in a language arts classroom and occasionally in an art classroom. But it was never possible to give kids real experiences with real mathematics or to have kids be scientists um, or musical composers or filmmakers or all the other sorts of things that computers open up for us um, without the presence of a personal computer. So the notion had always been rooted in the best practices are when 
it's the personal computer. It's the space for the children. It's their intellectual laboratory and vehicle for self-expression. It's where they mess about with powerful ideas and make things and collaborate, where an idea can germinate for a long period of time and then, and then um, be acted upon, um, where there's ownership of the machine and of the ideas and the processes within that machine. So you know, my experience over 29 years is the teachers who get it, and I just made air quotes, when I start talking about using computers in a constructionist fashion um, are the ones who understand a little bit about the history of, of education and, and know something about learning theory. And um, in a lot of cases came through the 70s when was the last time that we were actually, as Linda Darling-Hammond has, has said in recent work, um, making a real effort towards, towards equity and desegregation and progressive education. You know, it doesn't matter how someone teaches today. I could spend five minutes in a classroom and tell you who taught in an open education school in the 70s because they have a, they have a certain relaxation, at the very least, about what the children are doing. But they, the best teachers that I've worked with with computers recognize that if you stray from the script for five minutes, your kids aren't going to end up homeless and you're not going to be fired. So good, you know, my friend, let me just say one more thing about this. My friend Ron Canuel, who, who, whose school district in Quebec bought 6,000 laptops a few years ago um, based on my inspiration and other people's, um, has said that in their decade or so of working with laptops, one-to-one -one has made good teachers um, better, great teachers greater, and bad teachers worse. That the, that the laptop in the hands of the kids is not only a window onto the future, but it's a magnifying glass onto current practices and, and lets you know what kids are capable of that you may have been missing and how you know, archaic and, and dysfunctional and ineffective some, some current pedagogical practices might be. So good teaching is amplified by, by ubiquitous computing. So Gary, I've heard you talk about Seymour Pepper. I actually heard it in, heard you talk last year at Educon, which is, we'll do a brief commercial here coming up this weekend in Philadelphia. Um, but I don't feel like Seymour Pepper's often discussed at the educational technology conferences I go to. So you made a list of books that people who are doing, talking about education reform should read. What's a, a comparable list for people who are using computers in the classroom? Well, um, a little plug is I'm, I, I'm starting a site that I'm about to announce. It'll be, it's, it's actually up but unannounced, so you're the first ones to know about it, called dailypapert.com, where I'm going to see if myself and my friends can populate the site daily with a quote from Seymour Papert because his work over 40, 40 plus years is, is enormous um, when it comes to not only educational computing but, but learning and mathematics and artificial intelligence and school reform. Um, I, I think the most important per book specifically about educational computing that anyone can read is The Children's Machine, which he published in 1993. Papert wrote three seminal books, Mindstorms, which the subtitle was um, children, Computers, and Powerful Ideas, um, The Children's Machine, and then The Connected Family in 1996. And they, they, they cover some of the same intellectual ground, a lot of the same intellectual ground, but they have three specific audiences. The first one was academics, the second one was teachers, and the third one was parents. So you can choose any of those three books, but I recommend the sweet spot for educators is to read um, The Children's Machine. So are there other people that you recommend paying attention to um, 
to, to get a good vision besides you, of course, but, but who else do you kind of pal around with? And do you want to talk a little bit about your, your uh, consortia? consortium? Well, well, sure. I started to construct this consortium four and a half years ago because if you, if you went to one of the boat shows, you recognize that the only stuff that was being sold or, or talked about was designed to sort of um, strap the kids in, set the computer on stun, and come back for them at the end of 12th grade. Um, it was a lot about furniture and about data um, aggregation and not a lot about creativity and empowering learners. So I was able to convince a half dozen of the leading um, educational software companies concerned with children and constructivism and creativity and computers, inspiration, fable vision, generation yes, uh, school kit, logo computer systems, and tech for learning even though they were competitors in many ways to come together, if I didn't say inspiration, I should have, um, to come together to create events where teachers who were committed to using computers in creative, collaborative ways would, would get re-energized and recognize that, that they're not alone and that, and that there are other people who think and are fighting a good fight like them and are fighting a good fight just as they are. And so we started the Constructivist Celebration, which is always the Sunday before NEC or ISTE, which and it will be again this year in Philadelphia. Um, and then a few years ago, I wanted to create an event where people would have the luxury of spending four days working on personally meaningful, creative, open-ended projects in the ways that we would hope their, their children would, um, but also come in contact with powerful educational ideas. So to answer your earlier question, Steve, the folks who inspire me um, are Herb Cole and Jonathan Kozel and Deborah Meyer and Leila Gandini and James Lowen and um, uh, Dennis Litke and uh, Vivian Paley. And so I've created an event where my faculty is made up of pioneers like Brian Silverman and Cynthia Solomon, who over 30 and 40 years respectively have created much of the software and the powerful ideas behind it that we use. Um, and some amazing teachers uh, who, who use computers with, with all sorts of populations of kids in remarkable ways. And then this year's event has the guest speakers, Derek Pitts, the, um, the astronomer of the Franklin Institute, Leila Gandini, who's one of the world's leading authorities on the Reggio Emilia approach to education, um, Jonathan Kozel, the National Book Award winner, an American civil rights hero and advocate, um, activist. Um, and Mitchell Resnick, the, the Lego Papert Professor of Learning and Director of the Lifelong Kindergarten Group at the MIT Media Lab, so that they could be part of the conversation. And we could build bridges between the ed tech community, who sadly doesn't often understand enough about learning, and the progressive education community, like the Coalition of Essential Schools, that sadly doesn't give a lot of thought to modernity. And it's been incredibly rewarding for me to have people like Alfie Cohen or Deborah Meyer spend some time with us and, and sort of wink or acknowledge explicitly that they now see that using computers um, can be consistent with the sort of learner-centered democratic philosophy of education that, that they've dedicated their lives to. One of the things that really stood out to me when we talked about the um, um, coalition of essential schools was your your appreciation of the fact that when you go to that conference, everybody had pretty deeply read about education. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of old timers. Um, you know, if you have a community of practice, there has to be a range of expertise. There has to be customs and traditions that are honored and respected. And that newbies um, are welcome to the community based on their willingness to imitate the actions and behaviors of the experts. Um, and that's a really important idea that the ed tech community um, could really benefit from. I think it would be a lot more mature and taken more seriously if the way you became popular, and popular is a funny term, that was, it wasn't just because of the number of people who linked to your blog or how many times you tweeted, um, but based on the number of people who want to be like you, the number of people who want to study with you, who want to who want to imitate you, who want to learn from you, and you know, the, I, any number of us who are in this this webinar now, you know, will get the ISTE program or some other conference program and say, oh, I wonder who's keynoting. Who the hell is that? Where did that person come from? Um, aside from the fact that the conferences love to hire people who have nothing to do with our field and um, and and will you know dispense business wisdom to us whether we like it or not. Um, there's a, there's a flavor of the month aspect to the ed tech community. Um, that's not just because of the notion that technology changes quickly, but I think because it la it's because of a lack of depth and maturity and respect for tradition and recognition that we stand on the shoulders of giants um, and that there are powerful ideas that come before us that we have an obligation to respect and build upon and that the technology can amplify in ways that have been impossible in the past. So I know there are a couple things you want to bring up and then we'll move to Q&A. Before we do so, I want to ask a couple of poll questions of the audience. So you'll notice at the bottom of your participant window you have a green check and a red X. And if you're in Australia, that's a green tick. I can't remember what the X is. But the, the green and the red. And uh, Gary and I have talked about some ideas, one of which was a virtual book club around some of these important works in education. So if you think that would be of interest to you and you'd actually participate, will you click on the green check and click on the red X if you honestly would not make the time for that? This is based on Gary's post about the, the books that reform people talking about education reform should read. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and post that response. So a pretty good positive response there. I'm going to clear that now. Um, what if we did a Gary Sager, Gary Sager series where we brought on the kinds of people that, that Gary brings to his uh, annual conference? Is that an attractive item? <laughs> yes or no? Green check for yes, red X for no. I'm going to go ahead and post that. Okay, again, a pretty positive response. I'm going to clear that now. Um, Gary thinks that for the future of education shows, I should have more debates. I don't think I've ever had a debate, but the idea of bringing people on with opposing points of view and letting them um, kind of argue with each other or thoughtfully discuss an issue. If that's something that you agree should happen more often on the show, would you indicate with a green check, no with a red X? Part of what I like about doing this series is I get uh, a lot of people to tell their story. Maybe like Gary, I shy away from conflict. I'll go ahead and publish that. 
but I can change. But, but you know, Steve, it doesn't. Steve, it doesn't have to end up being a cage match. Uh, I, I, again, education seems to be the only sector where people talk into the void and don't interact with one another. You know, Meet the Press, the Charlie Rose Show. You know, <laughs> um, you know, are, are sort of examples of what I'm talking about, as opposed to some sort of circus. Well, I, can, I understand. Okay, final question. Uh, if there were some form of an, a constitutional convention uh, around education <laughs> in Philadelphia at the time of ISTE, would you try and be there? This is a way to gather and create some kind of a document around education. Green check says yes, red X says no. Okay, not nearly the, the positive response, I don't think, so I'll go ahead and publish that. So that may be a good indicator of interest. No, I guess it would be for um, right, it would be for people who were in the maybe the blogosphere or the tech world to create some kind of a, a founding document of principles. But I think that the response is not that positive. Okay, Gary. Uh, we should shift to Q&A in a few minutes. There were some things I know you wanted to talk about. Do you want to bring them up now? Sure. I'll, just, I'll do um, three quick things I've been thinking about. Um, one is, again, this sort of question of what's ed tech. And, you know, I, I, was, I was looking on the ISTE webpage today, and they have their three ed tech priorities, and all of them are lobbying for money. Surely, we're about more than, again, shopping and sort of begging for funds. Um, aren't there some policy implications that make teachers and, and students' lives better? Um, what, what should change in an educational, broader educational context so that computers can be used more to their potential? Um, why aren't these the priorities? You know, a very simple one that I've tried to get ISTE interested in year, for years is around the issue of filtering and blocking and, you know, I, I've stated it very, very succinctly as what's the experience that a child and a teacher should have when they sit at a computer? What should they be able to do with that computer? Why is it that I'm routinely in schools where the, the $1,000 computer is turned into a $100 piece of sculpture? after the IT department gets done with it. Surely there ought to be some policy um, advocacy around the kinds of experiences kids and teachers want to have with computers. So that's one thing. I think we need to define what ed tech is. And if it's only about shopping and about getting a bargain and increasing funding, then we ought to admit to that. But I actually think that there's some powerful ideas that we should embrace and that we could actually use some help um, from our collective organizations. Um, the second idea is that Professional development is ongoing and has to stop being thought of as an event. And I, I'm, that's very self-explanatory. I'm not going to talk about that much more. And then and the last idea is based on a provocation that, that came to me in a webinar I did a few days ago. And I was talking about one-to-one -one computing and using the computer in a learner-centered way where a kid could develop fluency like they would in a dance studio or as an art in an art class and learn to paint or sing or dance with, or think or dream with the computer. And yet someone said, well, you know, is there any evidence that putting kids on computers like you want is good for them? Well, aside from the evidence question, which I always find amusing because no one ever has the audacity to ask, is there any evidence that spelling tests are good for children or homework or standardized testing? Or how about graphing calculators? 
We've spent probably billions of dollars on graphing calculators over the last 25 years, haven't increased um, math learning 1%, one, 1 and yet nobody calls that into question. It's only computers, I would suspect because of the potential they have for, for disrupting the system, for, for empowering students, that this becomes suspect and, and requires evidence constantly, even though there's plenty of evidence to support what we're doing. But what really struck me was the, the, the accusation that I was advocating the putting of children on computers. And as Papert used to say, the question is, does the computer program the child or the child program the computer? Um, I'm all for empowering the learner, and yet there are moves afoot to replace teachers with computers. We've been talking on Chris Lehman's blog about the Khan Academy. Um, you know, that Bill Gates is investing millions of dollars to replace qualified, caring, compassionate educators with YouTube videos created by volunteers in their basement. Um, Michael Horn, who's going to be on your program later this week, is essentially a lobbyist for moneyed interests who want to increase class size, create online courses that just, that just deliver content to kids, and, and drill them constantly, and quiz them endlessly, and then give them more of the same the next day. Um, you know, these ideas are timeless. The idea of being taught by a computer goes back to World War II. And I like to say that any teacher who thinks they could be replaced by a computer probably should be. Yet, the money is heading in that direction. We're probably going to hear hints of it in the State of the Union tonight. This is not a new idea. In 1992, I published an article called Integrated Learning Systems, The New Slavery which was based on this fantasy of strapping kids to computers and having someone in a central office monitor their progress and, you know, and chart their grades. And it's worth recognizing that even if you believe that computers can teach children in a way that a competent adult couldn't, most of this software is merely a way of quizzing kids on prior knowledge. If you think about the software that purports to teach something, it doesn't teach anything. It quizzes and then maybe gives you a little bit of information and, and it creates a report for someone else. Um, and what's happening now, we have, we have the Department of Education advocating this, this thing called the School of One, which is this sort of science fiction-like, you know, Orwellian Dr. Frankenstein school where kids go to school and they sit down at a computer and they go through some drill and practice software and then it decides which other drill and practice software they use and, and then to the next drill and practice software and the next day they come in and there's a playlist produced for them where they get more of the same. None of us want their, our kids in a school like that, do we? And yet, there's endless money chasing this fantasy where Karen Cater talked about a recent speech, we can use computers to monitor secondary indicators of engagement like nodding and twitching. Well, I, I want teachers to be able to know the child, not just count the number of times they nod or click the mouse. And when we aggregate this drill and practice software, it doesn't even have the coherence of the original package because we're just slicing and dicing which one division quiz we're going to use at any given moment. We seem to want to reduce education to a series of checklists and mini lessons. And if that's the case, can't we do it on paper? Um, you know, I just saw the press release from Michael Horn's organization, which I might mention, his think tank, which is a nonprofit, um, in 2009 received $230,000 from the Gates Foundation. 
a lot of the research, and I can use air quotes, that his organization is generating is like a stock prospectus. It's telling folks who want to defund the public schools and replace it with a for-profit computerized model that can raise class sizes, reduce teacher pay, and, and decertify, um, rationalize, and de-skill teachers. Um, in, in the most recent study that he published just yesterday or the day before, you know, he cites this thing called the Carpe Diem School, which to the best of my understanding is 100 to 200 children at a high school age in, in a room together sitting at computers being taught by machines with, an, a, te with a teacher who occasionally comes around and visits with them. Um, this is the sort of proposal, prescription, that rich, well-educated folks who don't want to fund the public schools anymore are are, are embracing for other people's children, typically poor children, typically children of color. And they will fail. These models have never worked. They won't work now. They're going to increase the dropout rate. They're going to be more violent. They're going to be less effective. And then as a result, the same folks who want to make a quick buck off, off the, the failure of, of poor children and the misery of compassionate teachers will then be able to say to legislators and the president, see, we told you public schools don't work. Let's, let's have more charters. Let's have more privatization. And computers are being used not only to reinforce the status quo of traditional education, but through Orwellian language like individualized and personalized um, and you know, on demand, um, we're actually creating a system where the system is a lot less humane, a lot less flexible, a lot less creative, a lot less child-centered, but it is a lot cheaper, and it will, in fact, benefit a lot of corporate bigwigs. You know, we, we've had kooky ideas about teaching systems and teaching machines and school, automated schools for generations. What's different today is the billions of dollars being tossed around by foundations and the federal government to enforce that vision. And those of us who care about ed tech need to differentiate loudly and clearly, scream from the rooftops that we're talking about using computers to enhance the best of teaching, the be the richest, provide the richest learning experiences possible, not to imprison children's minds and to strap them to chairs and to reduce the cost of education. Innovation is not a synonym for cheaper or more productive. We, we, these are the sort of terms of Dickensian shopkeepers. And those of us who know better need to do better. And we need to not fall for these folks who are, who are profiting off our, off our remains. So as you can tell, Gary doesn't need someone to debate, to get into debate mode. But Gary, that was sort of a brilliant way to finish there. I'm very curious from the audience uh, if you agree that some of the things Gary said are important. Um, why there was not as much interest in some forum for issuing some kind of declaration about that or um, you know, gathering a group together. That would be of interest to me. But it's your chance now to ask Gary questions. Uh, we have about nine minutes, and I know that we want to make sure that people can get off to the State of the Union who are watching that. So I took note of two. One was Gary, uh, Andrew asked, Gary, how can we move the use of tech to better support thinking problem solving rather than new publishing? Oh, um, <laughs> well, I, I've done a talk that, I, that I've called um, re receptive teaching, and it's about helping people open their eyes to the 
rich learning opportunities that abound that surround us. Um, I, I think that when you see a problem or you wonder about something or you ask the kids what they wonder about um, or you use a text or a, or a manipulative, you think of ways that you can make rich connections to that. Um, it, it's often amazing to me when I'm working in a school as I recently did where I was teaching first and second graders to um, program in micro worlds and explore the sort of turtle geometry that comes from working in a logo environment. And they're learning not only right and left, but measurement and angle and, and prediction skills. And, um, and, you know, teachers being amazed that I ran and got pattern blocks to enhance the activity and that I pulled a copy of Harold and a Purple Crayon out of my bag and read that to the children and said that you could use the turtle to write your own Harold story. But there you're not just writing a story, you're using mathematics to express the illustrations and the animation that, that are um, integral to that story. So that well, we just need to be open to the sort of opportunities and, and the invitations around us that Good teachers have known how to do this forever. That there's a million things you wonder about, or your kids wonder about, they want to know more about, and that you create a context in which they can go into depth, that they can be that they can be lost in um, an idea, and and allow for serendipity to change course and to make new discoveries and to go in directions um, that you might not have anticipated in advance. Gary, are there sort of buzzwords or ideas that we, that we, those of us who are going to watch this data being could look for um, related to education. One that intrigues me is this idea of competition. I keep hearing that we need yeah. to be more competitive and I'm, and I'm intrigued by that because it's such an emotional word that to me encourages sometimes all of the wrong behavior. Well, it's a, it's a deeply immoral um, idea when it comes to education because especially global competitiveness, or even local, it doesn't matter. It's based on this idea that education is a scarce resource and you have to climb over the broken bodies and souls of your peers to get to the top of the heap so that you can learn. That's not the case. The Internet certainly disproves the notion that education is a scarce resource. And in the context of global or local competitiveness, it means that in order for one kid to learn, for one kid to succeed, all the other kids have to fail. You know, No Child Left Behind requires that all children to be above the, the mean by 2014. Uh, not only is that mathematically impossible, but it's, it's deeply troubling. Okay, so um, Andrew also asked, how can we increase the number of educators who get it? Well, we need to, we need to, uh, we need, uh, people can't choose what they haven't seen and shameless self-promotion is the key to all good things in education. Every time your kids or yourself do something good, you need to tell the world about it. You need to scream it from the rooftops. You need to call the local press. You need to put it on the walls. You need to send it home with kids um, so, that your, so that your colleagues recognize that things need not be as they seem. I've been ending talks recently by saying, if you're a teacher who remembers teaching with Cuisinier rods and gerbils and microscopes and dress-up corners and paper mache and singing songs and baking cookies and going on walks and conducting science experiments, then you have an obligation to not only bring that back into your school or your classroom or your district for the kids that you have the privilege of serving today, but to, ser to serve as a model for your colleagues who may not know that that's a possibility. Okay, just a couple of minutes. Carla, I'm giving you the microphone. To turn your mic on, click at the lower left on the large microphone icon. 
Hi, Carla. Hi, Gary. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, I feel like I'm in a school like this right now, and um, I was wondering what you think. It's kind of started out as one of the shining stars, and now it's kind of fallen back into this standard form. I just wondered what, what you think makes uh, that happen. You talked about that earlier. A lot of times it has to do with sustainable leadership. Sometimes the leadership that makes an innovation happen, like one-to-one, -one, for example, required sort of so much charisma that, that that kind of leader often then jumps to something else. And the, the community thinks that, well, he's moved on. Well, in fact, he, he was just adding something to the, to the mix. So I, I think you can do things to, to strengthen the community, whether it's sort of formal action research or learning circles or um, reflective practice of some sort where teachers come together and talk about um, what's happening. I think we need to talk more. Uh, I, and I don't think, I don't see the Internet solving the problem of teachers not, not knowing that the teacher in the next room. I, I, I think that there's something within us that, that creates that sort of isolation. Um, you know, there, there have been times where I've brought, again, I'll use the example of Cuisinaire rods into a classroom. And teachers go, gaga, Gladys, remember these Cuisinaire rods? Oh my god, I love them. The kids used to learn math with them. It was so great to teach them. It was so much fun. And then I'll just say, what happened to them? And then they just, I get a dumb look. And the teachers sort of shrug and go, oh no, they got rid of them. No one can ever tell me who they is. Um, but I think if we're sort of more deliberate in our practice, which includes talking to one another and saying, you know, you'll snatch, you'll snatch those puppets out of my cold, dead hands, um, then we can, we can sort of sustain the innovations a little bit better. Okay. I think this will be the final question. Kent, to take the mic, click on the larger microphone button at the lower left. Uh, yes, Gary. Um, I'm surprised you don't put any faith in technology's ability to develop artificial intelligence that will allow at least elementary kids to learn the core knowledge and uh, skills uh, such as reading that we seem to be so uh, uh, deficient in that carries all the way through the grades. I, look, I, look I, I, think, I don't think artificial intelligence has developed enough. And, I, I, and, and if we, if, you know, when I was a kid, once you could read, there was no longer something called reading taught in school. It certainly ended by fifth grade. Now, for some reason, we're teaching it through 12th grade. I don't get it. I actually think that this is a byproduct of removing access to high interest reading materials and about constantly interrupting and measuring the reading process so that a kid can't read a story without having every paragraph interrupted by a comprehension quiz or being, um, being you know, asked to identify the diphthongs or the gerund in the sentence or something. I think that one of the reasons why we're having literacy problems is precisely because we've over-systematized this and because we think that something as magical and perhaps complex as reading um, can, can, be, can be broken down into a set of rules or an algorithm that you can teach to a computer. Um, I want kids to have the richest, deepest, most meaningful learning experiences regardless of the domain. And I think the greatest predictor of reading is access to high interest reading materials, not, not grunting phonemes until the kid finally drops out of school. So I, I think that the quick fix, the, the, the systemizing of an education, the reducing everything to some sort of simple causality that, that takes the teacher out of the equation and removes 
power and agency from the learner, it may be why we're in the mess we're in, um, not the solution to it. Gary, thanks so much for coming on again. I can put up the link to stager.org forward slash future. So I'm going to clap for you here. Really appreciate your being here again. Uh, thanks to... Uh, oh, my pleasure. Thanks, folks. Thanks to Illuminate Illum Central uh, for my employment and coming up on the show to some other good interviews. And, and, and I'm guessing some of you will be very interested in hearing from Michael Horn tomorrow and then Karen Cater on next Monday. Gary, terrific to talk to you. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night. See you soon. Good night. And because of the uh, State of the Union address here in the United States, uh, we will close quickly. Be sure to go see David Perkins. Yes, on February 15th, David Perkins. Good. Thank you for the plug, Gary. Um, okay, so we'll close out quickly here. Uh, we'll stop the recording and then ask you to exit the room so the recording will process. Take care, everybody. See you on the interweb. <laughs>